This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Some of the discussions featured on this show are technical, while others are higher level. Today we have one of my favourite thinkers in the cryptocurrency space. Dominic Williams featured briefly in the last episode of Beyond Bitcoin, discussing practical Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus processes. Today we talk about synthetic assets. Coloured coins, dynamically collateralised coins, hedged DAO assets, and smart market instruments. This is really great stuff, and this conversation significantly deepened my understanding of the challenges of creating value-pegged tokens. It's a very technical one, and Dominic moves super fast. So get ready for some dense content, guys. Yo. How's it going, Dominic? It's good, it's good. I really wanted to know about, um, you gave like an awesome talk on synthetic assets at DevCon that I thought was worth going through and um, and your work at Definity on scaling is also really interesting. I mean, there's a bunch of interesting stuff on uh, on Definity and there was something else I had written down. Well, I mean, there's this, so um, a long time back there was, uh, you know, I was working on a cryptocurrency that was never released. There was a, actually a Pebble. Big, yeah, Pebble. There was a big long white paper um, that circled in uh, cryptocurrency, you know, pri- a private cryptocurrency news group. And it was never, um, I never pursued it for various reasons. I think partly because I realized that smart contracts were more interesting than pure currency. And uh, I wanted to solve more general problems. But uh, Pebble had two interests. One was scalability because it wanted to do micropayments, hence the word Pebble. Um, it wanted to do micropayments that couldn't necessarily be handled using um, state channels, sort of lightning network type things. And it also became interested in price stability. And the reason was that um, we envisaged that Pebble would have special transactions that enable people to set up subscriptions, micropayment subscriptions. The idea being that Facebook could say to people, hey, look, you can get rid of advertising, you can get some premium features if you set up a recurring Pebble transaction that pays us two cents a day in cryptocurrency, right? And clearly, if 500 million Facebook users took up the offer and were paying two cents a day to Facebook to get rid of the advertising and so on, um, it works out. You need to be able to handle about 100,000 transactions a second just to cope with that, you know, 500 million users making one transaction a day, you know, clustered in different time zones and so on. So it was clear that if you needed to handle 100,000 transactions a second, just to cope with one potential use case, um, scalability was very important. So uh, became very uh, interested in scalability for that reason and a few others. And Another aspect of that was that 
uh, price stability because you know if if you were Facebook and and you got five hundred million of your users to set up these recurring transactions, paying you two cents a day in cryptocurrency, clearly you would you'd be concerned about the value of the cryptocurrency falling so that that two two cents a day became one cent a day, which which of course would result in um, you know in, uh, commercial problems. So uh, there were two kind of directions. One was scalability, um, and the other was uh, price stability. And then eventually uh, they sort of split off, and the scalability is now the sort of not-for-profit research project, which is Definity, and the price-stable assets became uh, String, which uh, is... It's a for-profit venture, but it's not your normal. It's not structured like a normal venture-backed company. Uh, String is just a technology provider, and it aims to bootstrap a completely open uh, platform, a bit like a cryptocurrency, and, and which will have these voting tokens in it that we hope to have a share of. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, let's go on with, we've got three things here. We've got price stability, scaling, and synthetic assets. So let's start with, um, well, where, would you, where do you want to start? Anywhere you like. I would say that price stability and synthetic assets are actually very similar. So maybe that's a good place to... Oh, yeah, let, let's do that then. Okay. So um, the first thing to understand is that any notion of price stability has to be defined relative to some you know if you take if you take a crypto token and you say it's price stable you also have to state what it's price stable compared against so it might be that your crypto token is price stable relative to the dollar it might be that your price your your, your crypto token is price stable um, re- relative to the russian ruble um, and if you can do that it's a short step to saying i've got a crypto token that's price stable relative to a facebook stock for example. And so if you can create price-stable crypto tokens, then you can also create uh, synthetic assets. Okay. And so what is the, uh, what's, the, what's the mechanism by which, by which you create a, a synthetic, well, first of all, a price-stable token, then a synthetic asset using the smart contract functionality of Ethereum? Well, maybe it's um, easier to start with uh, another project uh, related to Pebble that was never, also never released <laughs> um, to um, create a price stable. It was called uh, Expert Price Stable Cryptocurrency over Bitcoin. And this was actually meant to run on Ethereum. And it, it kind of worked as follows. I think it's, it's good to talk about it because it's instructive. So the theory behind this system is that you have a decentralized reserve bank and the decentralized reserve bank maintains reserves of Bitcoin instead of gold. And it starts off issuing these expert tokens, which have, to begin with, a very small supply. And these tokens, the value of these tokens, is meant to be pegged to, for example, the dollar or, or something like an SDR, you know, a basket of currencies. So you can look at the price of the expert on an exchange like Poloniex, look at the exchange rate for Bitcoin, and then transitively um, calculate its cost in dollars and euros and so on. And the idea there was that as the price of the experts 
rose above their pegged target price because people are buying them up on exchanges. The Decentralized Reserve Bank, which of course is just a smart contract effectively, would issue more experts and it would make those experts available for sale for Bitcoins. So the idea was that cryptocurrency traders who are always interested in making a profit would come along and they would buy the experts that the Decentralized Reserve Bank had issued for Bitcoin yeah. and take them to the cryptocurrency exchange and sell them, making a profit from arbitrage. So they would be aiming to buy them for slightly less than they sold them for. But because the price of the experts had gone up, gone up on the exchange, um, the experts could be issued uh, near to their pegged price and still allowed the cryptocurrency traders to make a profit. On the other hand, if the price of the expert, experts fell on the exchanges, say, for example, um, there, was, there was a glut in the supply for whatever reason, the decentralized reserve bank would active, activate a special feature. And again, remember the decentralized reserve bank is just a smart contract. And uh-huh. The expert ledgers are held in a smart contract and so on. The decentralized reserve bank would activate a feature that would allow people to burn their expert to receive Bitcoin, right? So you could, you know, it's like a special function. You could, let's say you've got 10,000 expert, um, you could press a button. And uh, those 10,000 expert would convert into 1,000 Bitcoins, say. And the conversion price would be set such that it would be profitable for cryptocurrency traders to buy the experts on the exchange. And burn them to get Bitcoin. Precisely. And in this way, the decentralized reserve bank can exercise um, just just by creating mechanical opportunities, it can exercise remote force on cryptocurrency markets to control the price of experts. So um, I was kind of very interested in that. And I, and I was sort of thinking that, well, you know, if the price of Bitcoin continuously rises, then probably over time, the reserves of the centralized reserve bank will greatly, greatly exceed in value the supply of experts um, in the wild. So it felt like it could work actually. Um, and I, I, I spent some time, you know, talking to, uh, kind of people in the Bitcoin space. This is back in, um, uh, early 2014. And of course, you know, I mean, it was kind of funny because I, what I realized was that, uh, for, for Bitcoiners price volatility is a feature, <laughs> Right. I mean, they want they want Bitcoin to go to the moon. And if you start talking about, well, we can create this this expert thing that has a stable price. Um, this kind of like, well, they don't like that because, you know, well, firstly, they want to they actually want cryptocurrency with a volatile price that can possibly go to the moon. Right? And if they added on something like expert, well, you know, that kind of it's a slightly kind of worrying it's almost like an admission of guilt that price stability is a good thing. And their claim is that price stability is a bad thing. And, um, you know, it's much better to have this kind of currency that if everyone migrates to, the price of it just goes up and up and up and everyone goes to the moon kind of thing. So uh, it, didn't, it didn't get very far. It sort of fell on deaf ears. But I, I would say generally in relation to, to currencies that I don't think – I think people who have um, – you know, realized 
Satoshi's genius in in in, in uh, creating a currency that works without a government or a corporation behind it. But they haven't necessarily looked deeply enough into what makes a currency a good currency. And I would claim that you know a currency fulfills three main roles, which are unit of account, medium of exchange, and store of value, right? And it turns out that unit of account and medium of, medium of exchange are much better served if the currency is stable. In fact, the more the more stable the currency, the better you can do unit of account and medium medium of exchange. And so currently, you know, Bitcoin is kind of like a speculative store of value because it fails on these first two. Um, so I think it, you know, it, notwithstanding, I think Bitcoin can still succeed even without. Um, Price stability, but, but but it would really you know it really would provide a lot of value to the cryptocurrency space. Are you aware of Nubits? You know Nubits, the uh, it's from the uh, the peer coin ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. So i I've used the I've used those a few times. I mean, back when uh, back when they were there was a bit more market depth. That, it was an awesome way of um, of moving value around because there was always liquidity for. Um, for exchange at the price of exactly uh, one US dollar, or you know the equivalent price in Bitcoin, it was it was a really cool system. Yeah, and uh, but it's interesting that that um, that because of the psychology of your target market for this uh, this expert financial product, it didn't uh, it didn't appeal to them in spite of the uh, obvious utility. Uh, that's a real pity. Yeah, I think things will change. I think Ethereum will. Change, change the way all these things work because smart contracts are going to want what I call settlement currencies, and I mean we can already see there's there's, there's a range of projects trying to create them. I mean Maker Die is one of them, and so I think it's only a matter of time before we see a number of settlement currencies on the Ethereum chain. So what's a synthetic asset, and how does that relate to the uh, to what you just described? So coming to expert for a second, you know. We've said, you know, broadly, it's a, <clears throat> it's a stable cryptocurrency, but clearly it's, it's stable in relation to something, you know, and um, the, the decentralized reserve bank is pegging it to something. And that's, you know, d- dependent on the design of the smart contracts behind the decentralized reserve bank. And, you know, it can, it can look for, it can have, for example, a decentralized price feed from, you know, an exchange like Poloniex. Um, that tells it the exchange rate of XBIT to Bitcoin, and from there it can look at the exchange rate of Bitcoin to dollars and so on. But the important thing to see is that all all prices are relative, right? So you can just as well peg something to to the dollar as you can, or just as well, sorry, peg something to to Facebook or gold or oil or whatever as you can to to to, to dollars. And so I became more broadly interested in creating synthetic assets and started out with something, uh, a scheme, um, this is again in 2014, um, very similar to what Make a Die is using now, um, at least in principle, where it may be useful if I just, um, just give you give a broad overview of the four different mechanisms that I see can be used to create synthetic assets. Please do. Okay, so 
<clears throat> the first is the colored coin token. The second is the uh, dynamically collateralized coin. The third is the um, hedged DAO asset. And the fourth is uh, a smart market instrument. And the fourth one, the, the, the first three I mentioned before at DevCon, I've just changed the name slightly to avoid confusion. And the fourth one is a new one. So colored coin token doesn't need any introduction. You have some issuer who says, right, I've, I've bought some Facebook stock, you know, that I hold at the, a broker dealer, and I'm going to issue tokens that represent ownership of each of these Facebook shares, right? And uh, I, as it, let's say I'm the issuer, I can say to you, Arthur, you can buy one of these Facebook shares from me, and I will give you a token that represents your ownership of it. And at least in principle, you could then transfer that token to somebody else. Um, the problem with that model, although it's very simple, is that um, you know, you're dependent on this single centralized issuer, right? And that single issuer exists within uh, some jurisdiction, and a whole series of regulations apply to it. And clearly, that token, because it grants the holder a financial interest in, in the Facebook stock held by a counterparty is in fact a security. Right? All kinds of problems flow from that. Um, the first one, of course, is that uh, fungibility pretty much disappears. First reason fungibility disappears is that, you know, let's say there are two, two colored coin token issuers, you know, one in America, one in Hong Kong. And let's say they both issue to tokens on Facebook, right? Are these two Facebook tokens worth the same? They're not, obviously. There's different, you know, because the value of the Facebook token is um, at least partially dependent on the risk profile of the issuer, right? So you might hold a Facebook token from the American issuer. I might hold a Facebook token from the Hong Kong issuer. And they probably can't be exchanged, right? They're not fungible. They're not, they're not exchangeable. Secondly, um, of course, they're seizable. So, you know, um, some kind of agency in America could suddenly, you know, take a dislike to you. And oh, this Arthur Falls guy doing all these funny interviews, we know he's on ganja. Um, we want to seize, <laughs> <laughs> we want to seize Arthur's um, crypto tokens. So all they need to do is go to the issuer of your Facebook tokens and say, seize, seize Arthur's um, Facebook tokens. Now, this creates an even bigger fungibility problem, of course, because... I could still trade those tokens. Well, there's two... Yeah, exactly. And there's two problems. I mean, the first problem is that, you know, your underlying Facebook may have been seized. So now you come to me and say that you want to, you want to trade your Facebook tokens with me. And I'm looking... You mean, you mean Arthur's tokens? Can I trust Arthur? You know, right? I mean, you know, I heard he had some problem, problems, you know. Um, and then who did Arthur get the tokens off, you know? Um, so this really, again, further um, buries fungibility. And, and of course, it also introduces systemic risk because let's say that you had used your Facebook tokens as collateral in some smart contract, and now the agency seizes your tokens so that your tokens become worthless. There's a kind of dependency code, right? You know, there might be a whole web of smart contracts that fail because your tokens fail, right? And I mean, I could go on and on with problems 
that exist with the color coin token model. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, then you have something called the uh, dynamically collateralized uh, coin. Previously, um, I think I called this cryptocurrency collateralized instrument. And this is what I actually started with and, make, uh, and is, is what make a die do. Um, I'll describe my original scheme, which functionally is the same as the make a die um, system, perhaps a bit more formal. So let's imagine that we want a completely decentralized system that can create uh, price-stable tokens, i.e. tokens whose value is pegged to some external price feed, right? So we, um, we'll have a DAO, right? Decentralized autonomous organization that um, issues these things. And in order for it to issue a Facebook uh, token, there needs to be a buyer and there also needs to be a backer, right? Let's imagine that um, uh, you're the buyer. So you come along and let's just say that Facebook stock is worth $100, right? So you come along to say, hi, hi Dow, um, I want a Facebook stock. Here's my $100 in cryptocurrency, right? The DAO has an internal market of backers, right? And a, let's say the, 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 that each, each uh, Facebook token has to be collateralized with 125% of its value. So it, it needs a backer to say, yes, here's tw- an additional 25%, right? So you put in $100, a backer comes along and puts in $25, the Facebook coin now has $125 inside of it. And when it's redeemed, of course, if the price of Facebook stays the same, you will receive just $100 and the $25 will go back to the backer. And you'll see why the $25 isn't it. The extra $25 is necessary. So let's imagine that the um, uh, price of Facebook goes up, right? Um, so let's say it goes up to a hundred and fifteen dollars. Okay. Right? So clearly now we no longer have twenty five percent of margin, if you like, inside of that collateralized coin. We've only got ten dollars, and the system requires that there's twenty five dollars, right? So or not twenty five dollars, but twenty five percent. So if it's gone up to one hundred and fifteen. In fact, the system wants $143.75 of collateral inside this um, coin. So what it does is margin call the backer. And it says, hey, stump up. Um, stump up some more um, collateral. Right? And um, the backer, in this case, has to put in an extra $18.75 cents, right? And if he does that, you've now got 143.75 cents inside the coin. And the reason this is the case is that, you know, if, if Facebook, if, if you want to redeem your Facebook token, now you want to be able to get $115 out. And because the value of Facebook is volatile, we need to have this sort of margin for error. So um, everything's fine. Backer puts in um, this, this extra $18.75. And, and you, by the way, completely unaware of all this happening, right? You've yep. just got, you've yep. just got, I've just got a stable token. Totally. You've just got a Facebook, uh, a synthetic Facebook stock. 
Yeah, but what happens if, um, for whatever reason, the backer cannot supply the extra margin? And, and by the way, of course, we're imagining that the backer is um, hedging his position in the real world with puts and calls and things like that, uh-huh. right? And the system can be designed in such a way that backers can, if, if, in addition to long Facebook tokens, people can buy short Facebook tokens, and backers who are effectively market makers can net their positions, right? And that reduces some of the capital costs on the external markets. But um, let's just say that this backer, backer can, can't stump up the $18.75. Well, um, the system can, can take this token and auction it to another backer. And the reason is that it's still in profit, right? Because, um, you know, a Facebook uh, uh, stock is now worth $115, right? But the coin contains $125, right? So it's $10. It's $10 in the black. That's right. Yeah. So um, that, that will take, the, the system will take the coin, put it on an internal market and say, who wants to take this over? And the... Whoever takes it over will have to in, have to inject the uh, extra eighteen dollars and seventy five cents of uh, collateral, but um, they they may pay otherwise pay less for the coin, right? Um, than than one hundred twenty five. They might pay you know uh, you know one hundred eighteen or whatever and, and make some kind of profit on that, right? Um, so. Um, so yeah, anyway, so uh, the, yeah, so that's the kind of idea. Now, um, this does work relatively well. Obviously, um, it works much worse if the coin is being collateralized with um, cryptocurrency because the cryptocurrency itself is volatile, right? So the value of the collateral is going up and down like crazy. Um, if you have a settlement currency, a stable currency that you can collateralize it with, it can work much better. and for that reason, uh, Maker Die, I believe, is now looking at the Digix um, colored coin system for, for collateral. Um, and, you know, the, the, the price of gold is, is much less volatile. And consequently, um, the coin, um, you, know, you know, the backing of these coins is, is, is much easier. However, there's a problem there. Um, if you back a dynamically collateralized coin system, which is totally decentralized, with a colored coin, i.e. if you use a colored coin token for collateral, the danger is that you import all of the, the shortcomings of the uh, colored coin system into your dynamically collateralized coin system. So it's not at all clear that this is a solution. I mean, the benefits of the dynamically collateralized coin system are that it's fully decentralized, right? And it can't be, um, you know, these things can't be seized, the regulators can't control it and so on and so forth. That's the benefit that it offers. And if you use colored coin tokens as collateral, the danger is you get the kind of um, worst of both worlds. You get that dependency cascade, right? When something goes wrong, the, uh, the whole chain breaks down. Yeah, I mean, it's better than a colored coin token because there is some element of blinding, or at least arguably there is, right? It can be designed in such a way that there is, it, there is such a thing. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, you know, 
um, color coin tokens are um, aren't fungible. So does this mean that MakerDAO will only ever use digits, right? Um, and they're also seizable. Uh, another problem with the color coin, uh, the the uh, dynamically collateralized coin system, is that it is firstly the cost of capital, and secondly something called roll costs. So you can probably see that you know if you you bought this Facebook stock for a hundred dollars, and the backers put in in twenty five dollars, right? So immediately there's a hundred and twenty five dollars tied up to represent a $100 asset. And capital has a cost, right? And the cost is proportional, obviously, to the risk, and, but also to the you know, opportunity cost of the, the interest that wasn't earned on it. So those capital costs need to be borne by the owners of those coins, right? And that might be by way of a negative interest rate or just very large spreads. There's also another cost um, to, to the market makers, who are the backers, um, they, they've got to um, hedge their positions in the real world using options, right? Like they can't just go and buy Facebook because they've already like, put in 25, 25% of the value of the Facebook, right? And they're not receiving any of the money. It's locked up in this dynamically collateralized coin, right? So um, they've got to buy options, which is the cheapest way of hedging uh, their risk. But actually, when you hedge risk with options, you know, the options expire, um, they're kind of slightly blunt instrument. You have to sort of roll them over. And then what you uh, suffer is something called roll costs. Is you, when you're playing with these options, you, um, of course, there's a, you know, there's a spread on these options, right? And that's another cost, and you're constantly having to adjust your options, your position in options. And um, this will result in, in roll costs. So not only have you got this problem of cost of capital, you've also got this problem of roll costs, which um, also has to be paid by someone. So... Ultimately, my view is that dynamically collateralized coins uh, will be too expensive for normal investors. And in addition to that, there are also a whole load of nasty failure modes. So, you know, we've just assumed, of course, that when the backer of your Facebook coin couldn't put in the extra margin, another, another backer could be found. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You know, the backers have to get their liquidity onto chain. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe the markets have gone against them en masse and there just aren't any backers left. They're all, like, freaking out, you know. And make a die solution to this is for the DAO, you know, the system, the decentralized autonomous organization that's, that issues these things, is for the DAO to issue more crypto equity, right? And then re-collateralize the tokens, the dynamically collateralized coins, to re-collateralize them using the equity in the DAO. Now, the problem with this, of course, there are two main problems. The first is that the markets will realize that the system's in trouble and the more equity in the DAO is going to, going to be issued to recollateralize the coins. And consequently, anticipating the dilution, the value of the crypto equity in the DAO will collapse. Right? You get a kind of recursive um, death spiral. And yeah, that, that's kind of enough to... Um, create a rather nasty failure mode like a sort of black swan event right yeah totally right you can have like a uh, you can have a totally out of control um collapse in the price because there's this indication that something's wrong with the markets if this uh the unit of stake is being diluted and then at the same time you're also reducing its value by diluting it in the first place so i suppose yeah there are two mechanisms by which the value of that of that token is um 
is reduced and its and its value as collateral is uh, is totally yeah. So I mean, it's it's like a kind of it, it really is a black swan situation where you know the backers new backers can't be found for these tokens. So say for example, it could be because the collateral has dropped in price, or it could be. You know, it could be that the value of the cryptocurrency uses collateral and the tokens has dropped in price. Or it could be that, you know, some amazing news has been released, you know, um, by Facebook and the price has just jumped up faster than new backers can be found to, to, to boost the value of these tokens. Um, and now the market's looking at this and going, whoops, the system's got to issue more crypto equity in the DAO to recollateralize these coins. Well, how are we going to price this crypto equity? Clearly not very highly because we're about to get diluted. and. The moment that happens, you have a kind of recursive um, death spiral. And I think there are kind of ways people can try and address this with insurance schemes and things like that, but it is a problem. The other problem, of course, is that cryptocurrency traders um, are a pretty ruthless bunch. And if they can see the, um, if they can see the um, state of play you know, on, on the blockchain, they can say, well, you know, if we can create this or that pressure, right? For example, a pressure on the collateral or whatever it is, they can they can calculate. Well, this will result, for example, in the DAO being forced to issue more crypto equity, and they can think, okay, well, if we short the crypto equity in the DAO and then attack the dynamically uh, collateralized coin system, we can um, profit. And so you, you actually leads to a situation where there are active attackers. Um, this is actually. Can I just pause for a second? Because this is actually a um, what you're talking about is kind of like the the start of a few attack vectors on uh, on proof of stake itself, isn't it? If you have uh, the ability to dilute stake to depress the value of of stake purchased at a lower price, say the stake in the DAO. Yes, exactly. It's it's very very similar kind of thing, and um, that's one of the reasons I prefer uh, hardware based. Or, or, or rather, you know, hybrid civil resistance schemes where you combine proof of stake with um, hardware-based identities. Hey, so all right, I've got um, I have a couple of questions just because there's a break. Because mm-hmm. um, I was yesterday, I was speaking with Josh Siglia, who's the founder of this uh, the Swiss Swiss-based Bitcoin to gold um, exchange. It's called Voltoro, and he was expressing concerns about fungibility and. Um, and I thought you could uh, maybe enlighten me on this a bit. Uh, he was he was concerned about representing exactly the costs of storage that you expressed was an issue before. And I'm wondering if there's a yep. way I told him, oh, don't worry about it. Smart contracts will uh, will have some solution. How would you go about um, like dealing with uh, with an ongoing cost associated with a uh, with a crypto token? Well, that's actually very simple. You just have a negative interest rate and. You know, gold does have a neg- negative interest rate in the real world. You, you've, um, you know, there, there are genuine storage costs. Um, and in fact, actually, there's an um, uh, interesting kind of manifestation of this kind of thing in London. So people often wonder why you know, there's such a huge uh, demand for expensive London properties. And there's a simple reason, and that is that the UK tax system um, doesn't have a property or real estate tax, and you only pay very minimal council tax on, on your property every year that's pretty reasonably unrelated to the size of it. So you might have a $30 million property or more on, on, on Billionaire's Row or something in Hampstead, 
and yet only pay you know three or four thousand dollars a year in council tax. And this is very attractive to, for example, Middle Eastern families and Russian oligarchs and so on that are looking for somewhere to, you know, a safe place to put their money. Because if they put that money into gold, uh, I forget what the, the fee is, but it, it, it's actually pretty substantial. If you buy $30 million worth of gold, there's a pretty substantial fee owing on that every year. And relatively, if you put that $30 million into a London property, the council tax is, is just miniature. It's non-existent. So it's a sort of tax-free way of keeping you know, money as an asset. Um, and oftentimes, these properties you know, fall into disrepair, and you can go down these incredibly expensive streets, and you'll see a lot of properties are derelict. And people think, well, why, why on earth is that? And the reason is that the owners know that uh, they don't want to pay for the upkeep, and they know that the, the value of the properties is such that if someone were to uh, buy these properties Later, they'd be quite happy, you know, building a new one or renovating it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. That's that's that uh, <laughs> that's that question answered. Um, <laughs> so the way you deal with it is negative interest rates, anyway. So you just you just have a small contract, and you know, if I if I get a thousand dollars worth of gold tokens uh, out of that small contract, well, you know, it automatically debits something from my balance. Sweet. All right. Um, so the other we have three things still to go. We've got. Uh, the hedge DAO asset and the smart market. Yeah, smart market instrument. Yeah. So we had we had the um, CC, CCTs, which was the um, uh, common coin token. We had the DCC, which is the dynamically collateralized coin. Uh, now we have the um, hedged DAO asset, and this is a kind of hybrid scheme because it does rely upon. Um, regulated, organized interactions with the real world. But it tries to do that in as a decentralized manner as possible and to firewall the, 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 the stable coins, if you like, the synthetic assets um, from, from the regulated traditional system. And this is actually the model, um, one of the models that we're pursuing. Um, and it's quite an expensive model to pursue because you have to do quite a lot of real world work to, to bootstrap it. And very basically, you have something like an automated market maker, and it issues and redeems what we call de-assets. And this terminology actually uh, has been sort of a bit more widely used recently. There was someone uh, mentioning similar schemes, and this, this came from the DevCon presentation in London last year. Um, so uh, you have the DAO anyway, and... Let's say you, Arthur, come along and you say to the DAO, I want to have $10,000 worth of Facebook stock. Wouldn't, well, not Facebook stock, I correct myself. Uh, synthetic Facebook stock, D-Facebook, right? We call it D- DFB for sure. And so this, is just, so, wait, so this is just an asset that's pegged to the value of Facebook. That's right. But um, as we'll see, in contrast to um, DCC mechanisms, the underlying Facebook stock is ultimately bought <clears throat> by people that interact with the system. So it's more capital efficient. So we avoid... Okay. Yeah, so the, the objective here is to av- avoid um, creating unnecessary capital costs uh, because when people spend $10,000 on synthetic Facebook, ultimately somewhere in the system, 
$10,000 gets spent on real Facebook stock, right? And also to avoid roll costs, because um, if, you're cons- if, if, if uh, market makers in the real world are constantly trying to hedge their positions using um, rolling options, but, you know, every time they have to buy and sell an option, they're going to lose money on the spread, and this is, and it generates what's known as a roll cost. And, and all of these things, unfortunately, have to be borne by the holder of the asset um, in the form of much larger spreads and potentially, if, if the system is to survive, negative interest rates. So we want, we want to avoid that. And the DAO, if you like, is a kind of automated and has a kind of automated market maker in it. So let's say your author comes to the DAO and you say, I want $10,000 of, of synthetic Facebook. And you have $10,000 either in another synthetic currency you know, or in a cryptocurrency. The automated market maker will say to you, okay, hold on one moment. And it will talk to um, what we call a liquidity provider. And I'll explain how these liquidity providers can be trusted in a moment. But it will talk to the liquidity provider or liquidity providers, there's a market to them, and it will say, who will sell me a promissory coin on Facebook? And basically, you could look at this as a total return swap or a CFD. But we don't like to think about it like that because they sound like securities and a DAO, which is a piece of software, can't be a counterparty uh, in, in, in a you know, financial contract. So it's not a security because there's no legal call. There's no person there. Yeah. yeah. So the DAO will say, you know, who will sell me a promissory coin on Facebook? And it'll look for the best price. Um, it'll say, right, I'll take that offer. And it'll say to you, right, here's your $10,000 worth of synthetic Facebook. It'll take the money that you gave it and it'll pass it to the liquidity provider. The liquidity provider who has a float will already, however, have hedged his position on the promissory coin by actually purchasing the underlying Facebook stock. Now, um, there's some important points about this, which makes it rather hard to set up. So, you might be looking at that thinking, well, that's great, obviously, because you know, you've got these synthetic Facebook uh, tokens and somewhere in the system is the, there's real Facebook and this is very capital efficient and so on. But what, what would happen if the liquidity provider that's trusted by the DAO just ran away, right? At the end of the day, the liquidity provider has received your payment and what's the guarantee that it firstly you know, does actually hedge its position by buying the underlying Facebook asset or even secondly, um, doesn't just run off with the money, right? So in order to make this kind of system work, you need um, liquidity providers which act as principal traders, effectively. They sell these promissory coins, which are kind of cryptocurrency, if you like, and uh, they hedge, hedge their own positions using underlying stock. But in order to make, that, make sure that they behave correctly, they have to exist within a compliance framework. And the question then becomes, well, who enforces this compliance framework? And we um, have a kind of horizontal compliance framework where liquidity providers, first of all, have to be inducted into the system on the decision of the DAO, which has kind of voting tokens which make these decisions. There are various requirements for liquidity providers, as you'd imagine, a certain working capital float, requirements relating to the individual directors of the organizations. Um, and they sign up, you know, they have to adopt special, special articles of association and they sign up to a compliance um, scheme, uh, which, you know, includes things like continuous auditing, um, 
relation uh, interactions between broker dealers and all kinds of things like that and they become uh, horizontally liable to each other so let's say Arthur you and I were both liquidity providers right and um, probably we're not in a position to be liquidity providers but just say we were we would firstly have to uh, have our public keys accepted by the DAO right to be if you like authorized liquidity providers um, and we could then start selling promissory coins to the DAO and hedging our positions via a broker-dealer. If this continuous auditing system turned up that you hadn't hedged your position properly or something like that, or you'd been engaging in some practice that, that breached the rules of compliance, you would then become legally liable to me, and I would be able to sue you. And so we have a kind of horizontal and, and enforcement mechanism. And, of course, the objective is to spread these liquidity providers around the world, you know, places like Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Switzerland, uh, not uh, probably initially America, and, uh, you know, try and, uh, the, the, with the advantage that, you know, the, the trust is somewhat distributed, there are multiple parties continuously auditing each other and, and keeping, keeping behavior in check, and such that, you know, if, if one of the liquidity providers uh, starts getting into trouble because we believe that the banks will actively try and antagonize regulators to take action against decentralized finance companies. And who knows what might happen, you know, in, in this world of politics. If one of these uh, liquidity providers gets into trouble, then the system is set up in such a way they would forward their promissory coins. And if, if, not, if it wasn't possible to, to, to forward the assets, they'd be liquidated and the cash would be forwarded to other liquidity providers in other places around the world. So we try to create, you know, although in, in, in this model there is, um, you know, quite a substantial real-world component, we've tried to apply the lessons of computer science to the um, real-world uh, part of the system and make it as decentralized and distributed as possible. Um, uh, does that make sense? So the liquidity providers purchase the underlying asset and the DAO issues the uh, issues the token that is backed by that asset. Wait, so just explain how, that exact relationship between the uh, between the DAO and the liquidity providers again. Well, so there's a, the DAO, the 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 automated market maker inside the DAO acts as a kind of firewall, right? Because um, it can't be a legal counterparty, and there is no direct mapping between your synthetic Facebook tokens. And Facebook held at a broker dealer by any of, the, any of these liquidity providers. So you know when you, I mean, look if you if you said if you went to the system, the autonomous finance system, and said, "Hey, I, I just want to buy, you know, a uh, hundred dollars of Facebook." That it may be that the autonomous market maker feels that that's within its risk tolerances, and it just issues you a hundred dollars of synthetic Facebook, and just keeps the hundred dollars in its reserves and aims to buy promissory coins off the liquidity providers at a later date, you know, with some netted larger value, right? So it, it's not that the important facet of the design is that there is no mapping between the synthetic assets and the underlying assets that liquidity providers purchase to hedge their positions. Okay, so, so I see, right. So, so the liquidity providers themselves actually sell a um sell something like you were saying before like a like a total return swap to the dow yeah 
but, but, but of course, I mean, it's not a total total return, return swap because the Dow can't be a legal uh, counterparty. Okay, but it has the same effect. Has a similar effect, but but ultimately, it's a cryptocurrency, right? Because security security requires security requires a counterparty, and a Dow can't be a legal counterparty. So, in, in fact, in your case, when you bought the synthetic Facebook stock, these synthetic Facebook stock confer absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. You can't take these synthetic Facebook stock to somebody and say, right, give me the underlying Facebook shares because there aren't any. You don't own any Facebook shares. You just have in your possession some synthetic Facebook stock. Now, it so happens that the system is designed in such a way that the synthetic Facebook uh, stock will track, mirror, whatever you want to call it, the, real, the value of real Facebook stock very closely and reliably. But, but they're not the same thing, and, and then there's no, there isn't even a one-to-one mapping. So let's say you're a big holder of um, – well, let's take two different examples. Let's say, first of all, that you've got some of the synthetic Facebook stock in a kind of consumer wallet, and you're using your synthetic Facebook stock as a kind of currency, right? And you've got some debit card that patches through to your wallet, right? And you go into Facebook – sorry – Going to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, you go into Starbucks and you decide you want to buy a coffee. Okay. So you need to liquidate uh, $5 of synthetic Facebook to pay for coffee. And you need to basically turn into a settlement currency you can give to the card issuer that will then send the signal back down to, to pay for your coffee in the real world. So in this case, you know. Um, there's another complexity I'll get to in a moment, but you know when that happens, if that goes through to the DAO and it says, "Hey, please, um, you know, please redeem five dollars of Facebook stock." Well, clearly in the real world, you can't buy buy five dollars of Facebook stock anyway, right? You can't sell five dollars of Facebook stock. So you know the DAO, depending on its net position, may or may not interact with liquidity providers and tell them to close promissory coins, right? Um, Another example would be that rather than just wanting to liquidate $5 of uh, synthetic Facebook, you want to liquidate a a massive position or or a a medium position of um, 100,000 synthetic Facebook stocks. Well, in this case, you know, there's no, those, that $100,000 worth of synthetic Facebook doesn't map to Facebook being held by a specific um, liquidity provider. And the DAO at its discretion and based upon the best rates you can get will, you know, um, can close promissory coins with any liquidity provider in order to, you know, satisfy your demand to, to, to redeem these um, Facebook stocks and, and make sure that at the same time it, the system re- re- remains, um, you know, net zero from end to end um, and, and balanced. So there's no, there really is no, um, there is no mapping. And something else I should add as well. I mean, I, I'm dramatically sort of. Over, oversimplifying the system, there's actually a, a decentralized exchange layer that sits in front of this DAO, right? So many of so that's more like a ca- you know a bit like a cash over a file system. Most of the transactions, most of the you know buy and sells of these synthetic assets won't even go near you know won't even result in any interaction with liquidity providers at all, right? And the DAO just creates an outer spread, right? And then, you know, normal, independent human being market makers will come in and create an inner spread, just recircling those D assets um, on, on the exchange of, of very low cost, right? Because there's no transaction fees in the exchange, right? Um, 
So, yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of purpose of the system is that, you know, um, the synthetic Facebook stock isn't a security, it's just a, a crypto, you know, price stable crypto token. You've got no, you know, it doesn't grant you a financial interest in anything, there's no legal rights associated with it. Um, and the liquidity providers who interact with the decentralized system, again, the DAO can't be a legal, legal counterparty. Um, and, uh, you know, they're basically principal traders, you know, they're trading these promissory coins, which are kind of cryptocurrency, and hedging their own positions in, in the real markets. And they behave in predictable, um, required ways because they have horizontal legal relationships between them. So, yeah, that's how, how it works. And, it, you know, the, the good thing about this system is that it's very capital efficient. You don't get the cost of capital. You don't get the roll costs. The difficult part of the system is this whole sort of network of liquidity providers has, has got to be bootstrapped. And that's one of the things we're working on at the moment. And if any, anyone listening, you know, has any ideas, and you know, very pleased to hear from them. Maybe a few because, million you know, dollars to spend on Facebook stock. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, the great thing, you know, the liquidity providers, is it, it's a very low risk business you because they you know, hold the they hold this they hold yeah, the underlying but, assets so there's no uh yeah, yeah. so it, it's just purely arbitrage you know that they um combine sell you know under the, the, the thing they're hedging their positions with for one price and obviously that they're, they're, they're creating a spread on the promissory coins that they sell to the automated market maker so um that, that you know it's, it's not a it's it's not a hedge fund where you're taking positions on things and hoping the market goes in some direction or another you can predictably make money from this um, on on the spread. Okay. Um, uh, let's uh, let's because this is going to turn into a really long episode, and we've still got the smart market in- instrument, and then the. Uh, well, I suppose we are right now covering cr- the creation of synthetic assets, aren't we? Yeah, we we are. I mean, all all of these schemes actually create synthetic assets. Well, I mean, I guess you could say the um, coloured coin tokens aren't really synthetic assets; they're just like some kind of weird, weird to- thing. Yeah, a token of ownership or something like that. I mean, I. I mean, I'd almost like just like to cross color coin tokens off because, in my view, they're a pretty stupid um, thing and they don't really belong in the. Um, I mean, that's not, not quite fair. Actually, I mean, I, I like what Digix is trying to do, but um, I think there are going to be a, a lot, a lot of problems with them. You know, uh, our objective is really to try and create a kind of new, global, uh, completely open. I should repeat that: completely open global financial system sitting on top of initially Ethereum, you know, in the decentralized world that can enable smart contract developers to create arbitrary um, financial services, you know, for consumers, right the way from, you know, consumer applications, like bank, bank account type of things, um, all the way through to, um, you know, advanced risk management systems. That, that's our objective. And so to do that, we, we, we need to create a pretty... Um, robust fabric and that's what we're trying to do i mean it's not, it's not only about making a robust fabric it's also make it about making a low cost fabric so we believe that we can bring the spreads we can have narrower spreads the spreads in our system will be narrower than they are in the real world because you know the dow creates an outer spread and market makers can make can profit by making an inner spread um but you know there, there are there are downsides with the system i think the, the biggest problem we got is you know uh, where these liquidity providers are and you can imagine you know there are, there are the usual places you might expect to put something like this like in hong kong singapore china is a big one um london possibly you know places in switzerland um but but nonetheless i think what we're gonna see is 
regulators, especially in the US, feeling very upset about things like um, autonomous finance. And all of the old arguments have come out, like, you know, the only people who can be trusted to, to, to handle this kind of stuff are the banks and, you know, this is a recipe for disaster, et cetera, et cetera. And they will then use their influence and their connections and networks and leverage to lobby regulators and say, look, you know, we think this company here is doing something very dubious. You know, we'd like you to um, investigate them. And without liquidity providers actually doing, having done anything wrong or having broken any law, you know, their operations can be impeded and difficulties can be created. So um, I think that's, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges. Having said that, you know, the other side of that, you know, the, 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 in, in our system, and I'd encourage anyone who's interested in doing this to uh, contact me. Um, the system is structured in such a way, of course, that liquidity providers who come in early uh, gain disproportionate benefits. And if this succeeds, and you know, I believe there's like trillions of dollars uh, in the existing financial system that can move into decentralized financial systems, you know, the rewards could be, could be very big for um, people who take uh, bold actions and um, try and get in there early and weather the storm. So yeah, I'm very interested to hear from anyone that feels that's of interest. Uh, so the smart market instrument. Yeah, so, um, you know, having just described the problems with um, hedged DAO assets, um, it's not surprising that, you know, it was also looking at things which are um, uh, more, more difficult for regulators to mess with. And I, I won't try and explain this in full. I'm literally, I only sort of, I, don't, I won't even claim to fully understand it myself, but uh, one of our guys, Dr. Uh, Casey, has spent a lot of time researching this. Um, you can, have you ever heard of binary options? Uh, like yeah. A bi- yeah, a binary options market is very similar to a prediction market, fundamentally, right? And you can just, you know, describe the price of, um, you know, some asset at an expiry date as you know, a series of ranges, let's just say you think the price could be anywhere from 50 to 350, right? You've got 300 ranges, like zero to one, sorry, uh, 50 to 50.99999 recurring. That's one range, right? And by buying baskets of these options, binary options, you can pretty much um, mimic uh, anything you want. You can mimic a CFD, you can mimic a put and call option, all sorts of stuff. And you can combine, so you can combine kind of synthetic assets and uh, with um, all manner of derivatives on the same exchange, which obviously, you know, consolidates volume. And that's a nice feature. But of course, a normal prediction market or a binary options market has an expiry date, right, where it starts and then it stops. Um, and, and whereas investors, especially consumers and so on, want a continuous market. They want to be able to buy Facebook, and then when they've had enough, they want to be able to sell it. They don't have to wait for some expiry day. But there are ways, and it's, it's a complex field, there are ways um, of combining uh, lots of different binary um, um, uh, options markets to simulate a continuous market, right? And there are kind of also ways of preventing roll costs so you can roll stuff over from one market to another without roll costs and so you know it's, it's a, that's quite a complex field and uh, but i think you know that there's a lot of um potential there and we, we're working on it um i think probably at the moment as well the the, the, the computational load these things will generate is, is too much for ethereum 
but you know we're working on it and and as i'll explain later you know uh, there are many people working to improve the um, throughput of ethereum so it may become possible some sometime in the future but I, without trying to explain how exactly this stuff works because it is complex i'll just give a very basic example of how this can 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 work with remote action let's assume that first of all that we've got a stable settlement currency right and that might be created using hedged DAO assets or other means we'll just assume we've got a stable settlement currency so now we've got this kind of uh, continuous combinatorial auction thing, right, that simulates a continuous market. And um, this, these, these systems have automated market makers, all right? And they d- on each time interval, they decide according to the external price feed, right? Now, let's say the price of a Facebook stock is $100, right? And for the moment, the, um, the market in its nascent, you know, fully newly initialized state also charges $100 for someone to go long Facebook, right? Um, but uh, along comes somebody and they go long Facebook, right? And by the way, there's, there's, there's some liquidity that's already been injected into this market that the autonomous market maker has a float, right? And this float is semi at risk, but for the most part, it should predictably make money. So anyway, somebody comes along, here's this brand new, you know, um, continuous combinatorial um, binary options market, right? Someone comes along and they go long Facebook. What the automated, automated market maker will do is it'll increase the price of Facebook. Um, so maybe, you know, the person wants to go long Facebook, the external price of Facebook is 100. Maybe the person who buys in will pay 101. When the price is increased, so the next person who buys Facebook will buy 102, right? Now, clearly, 102 um, is, you know, $2 above the, the, the spot in the real market. And it's that real spot price, right, that will decide how the, um, the options market is, just, you know, is, is, is um, finalized, right? So you might look at this and think, oh, well, that's terrible. You know, um, someone's gone long, they had to pay 101. The next person's going to have to pay 102. Uh, why would anyone do this? Isn't this just going to get worse and worse? Well, the answer is no, because we've now created a mechanical arb opportunity, an arbitrage opportunity, right? So completely independent market makers out there in the decentralized real world. Anyone can come along and say, right, the smart market is now um, asking uh, $102 um, for Facebook. Well, I'm not going to buy Facebook. I'm going to short Facebook. I'm going to short that Facebook down to $100, which is the price in the market, right? And what I'm going to do having shorted it down to $100, is I'm going to go long in the real markets to hedge my position. And of course, I will um, earn money on the spread, right? Yeah, so it's pretty pretty straightforward, but it's a pretty profound mechanism. It's kind of, um, you know, liquidity transfer by remote action or something like that, right? Yeah, it's because you've got these two separate, you've got one person with stake in two different markets, and uh, that that is being leveraged in in uh, in opposite directions, but with the uh, taking the um, taking the profit in the form of the arbitrage. Yeah, exactly. So it's you know the, the automated market maker um, will always you know according to its own net position change the price that it's offering. So it starts off with this float, right? And it starts offering this kind of equilibrium. No one's invested anything yet, you know. It, it's offering Facebook at 100, right? Or 
but then but the real Facebook's at 100. If someone comes along and says they want to buy some amount, it looks at the amount they're wanting to buy, it says, okay, well, we'll give this to you at 100, and just for the sake of argument, 101. You know, already it's above the external market. If someone else comes along, it's like, yeah, we'll give this to you at 102. Um, that's creating an arbitrage opportunity, right? Somebody real world who's not organized, not in any kind of, um, you know, uh, compliance framework like in the DHAs. And they just like, well, okay, sure. I'll short it back down to, because the, the thing with these smart markets is you can short, they you know, long short, um, create puts, calls, anything you want, right? And they'll go, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to short this thing down and bring it, you know, back to its equilibrium price with $100 um, for a Facebook. And um, what I'm going to do is, is um, hedge my position by going long in the real world. But, you know, I'm going short at um, 102. I'm going long at 100. So I've made some money, right? And it's like basically arbitrage. Um, and when you, I mean, again, this is like, you know, someone should have a conversation with me because this is, really, this is actually a really perversely complex area. But, you know, there are ways of, um, uh, possibly ways that, you know, you can net this out to really reduce the cost of capital, and, which is important to bring the spreads down. Um, and so if we do this, I think, you know, you'll see DHAs from us first, but then you, as a kind of backup, we're also going to have these uh, SMIs. Um, and, you know, with all the things we're doing, we're just going to produce all the code, stick it up on GitHub, not only for, you know, obviously that we're going to bootstrap these systems, the, the autonomous finance law, but we're also going to provide software code and upload that to GitHub that enables people to interact with the system. So, you know, with this kind of smart market thing, right, we, we'll have code in GitHub and, and anybody, um, you know, anybody who has an interactive broker account or an e-trade account or whatever it is will be able to just run, run the software, right? And the software will talk to, you know, Ethereum on the one hand and the broker-dealer API on the other hand and just make money from upcharge. Right. And who, would, who would say no to free money? So, but those, you know, obviously, when you get into this kind of stuff, risk management, and it's, it's a bit, it's a bit more perversely you know, complex. Yeah, it gets more complex. You know, it's I mean, it's not nearly as simple as the DHA model, which is why you'll see that from us first. But again, you know, if anyone's interested in this, you know, they should contact us. And um, you know, it's a really exciting area. I mean, the SMI stuff may not appear immediately because of the computational complexity involved and things like that. But, but there are even kind of solutions to that in the works as well. So again, you know, if anyone's really keen on this, uh, they should contact us. But you see in this system as well, the nice thing about the smart market stuff, I mean, it's not as efficient actually as the DHA stuff. There will be, you know, there are costs of capital, there are roll costs and so on. And so the spreads would be bigger. However, and it's also, by the way, the other disadvantage of, of, of this kind of system, same with DCC, DCCs, is it's very difficult to explain it to consumers as well, right? And we want people around the world feel confident that they can put lots of money into this and it'll be safe, right? And that, that's a big, <laughs> big, big issue, right? Um, but notwithstanding all of that, um, we can see that one of the great benefits of the system is that we're achieving hedging without knowing who the, the if you look at the liquidity providers, the market makers are, right? Um, and that's very powerful because it's a backup and there are other problems with it too about liquidity flows and things like that. There are limitations, but nonetheless, it's a very powerful backup because it's, it means that it makes it possible to 
create these kind of systems which are fundamentally net zero, right? Without any regulated entities participating in it at all, right? I mean, it might be that, you know, I mean, certainly, I'm sure you're probably not allowed to do this kind of thing in America. Well, you, you are actually legally, but you probably get, you know, if you're a company doing it, the regulator would come after you because the bank would tell you to tell them to come after you. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if somebody has an E-Trade account or an interactive broker account, they've got, a, they've got an API, they can run the software that interacts with the API and interacts with Ethereum. And uh, that's their private right. They can just run that from their home. And this will ensure that you've got a you know, net zero system. Um, but having said that, there are, some, you know, there are a whole lot of complexities. But it's, 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 it's interesting to see that, you know, ultimately, um, we're going to keep on working with this. And, you know, our objective is to create, uh, you know, a global, open, permissionless financial layer that enables anyone who can write smart contracts to create financial applications. Let's, uh, let's call it there because with content this dense, I'm not going to be able to um, force kind of an hour and a half of this stuff onto people. Wow, great. Hey, Dominic, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to go to an Ethereum meetup right now. Um, but I'll, uh, let's schedule and let's see. I'll probably, well, I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll, I don't think I have too much on over the next couple of days. So um, we'll figure out a time. Hi, right, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Dominic. There will be a follow-up to this episode next week covering scaling. Show notes, credits, and links can be found at letstalkbitcoin.com and on Twitter, at EtherReview. Review.